You're listening to The Encounter Podcast, featuring the latest messages and teachings by David Diga Hernandez. Don't forget to subscribe. The Encounter Podcast, encounter the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. You're praying for them to come to Jesus. You're praying for them to get saved. But no matter how much you preach, no matter how much you pray, no matter how many conversations you have with them, it seems like they just continue to resist the gospel, like they continue to just reject the Lord. In fact, sometimes it may seem that the more you preach to them, that the harder their hearts become. Now, as I said that somebody came to your mind, maybe it's one individual in particular, maybe it's several individuals, maybe it's a group of people that you work with or that you know or that you study with, a family member, a family group, household? Well, I want to show you from Scripture how to evangelize. The simplest way, the easiest way. Now, when I say the easiest way, I don't mean that there won't be any challenges. I simply mean that it is the biblical way, the more specifically biblical way, and the simpler way. Spirituality is always simple. When we begin to complicate things, that's when we know we're crossing over into religious territory. Now, I want to share these keys with you And then at the end of this message, I want to pray with you for your loved one. I'm going to agree in faith with you for them to come to the cross. Now, it's important to remember that salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit. And even the individual being drawn to salvation, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. So it's not something that we do in our own effort. We do the difficult, God will do the impossible. We obey, God will do the miracle. We preach, God will convict the heart. We share the gospel, and ultimately, he's the one who saves. So we carry out the assignment we have, and then we leave the rest to God. Now, there are several different kinds of evangelism that you'll see in the scripture. I've categorized them in four different categories. You'll see confrontational evangelism. An example of this is Acts chapter 20, verses 20 and 21. I never shrank back from telling you what you needed to hear, either publicly or in your homes. I have had one message for Jews and Greeks alike the necessity of repenting from sin and turning to God and having faith in our Lord Jesus. This is to go out and to declare the gospel message, to declare repentance. Sometimes you'll see maybe street preachers preaching at parades or preaching on university campuses or in places of public gathering. This is what you would call confrontational evangelism. And often in the church, we demonize that kind of evangelism all the while not recognizing that definitely the Holy Spirit does work through that kind of preaching. Then there's relational evangelism. Now, in my opinion, I don't have any statistics to back this up, just in my experience and my own personal observation, I've seen that, number two, relational evangelism is the most effective. 1 Corinthians 7, 16, the Bible says, don't you wives realize that your husbands might be saved because of you? And don't you husbands realize that your wives might be saved because of you? Now, this is an example of relational evangelism, but relational evangelism has more to do than just spouses. Now, the Bible here is not saying that you should marry an unbeliever as an act of an evangelist. Here, of course, Paul the Apostle is writing to those who are already in these situations. They're already married, and then they get saved, and maybe their spouse doesn't yet follow in the same footsteps. So he's saying you can be used to win your spouse over. This is not talking about evangelism through dating. That is, of course, not biblical because we are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, someone might say, well, I know someone 
who married an unbeliever or started dating an unbeliever and they came to the cross. Well, this is not necessarily God's approval. Do not mistake God's mercy for God's approval. So here we see that it can be uh, carried out through relationships, evangelism. Uh, friends can win friends. Spouses can win spouses. A sibling can win sibling. And this is how it works when you share the gospel with those whom you know and love, even those who you work with and study with and are in constant communication with. That is relational evangelism. And again, I believe this is the most effective kind of evangelism. Um, so this is not evangelism by dating. Again, I just want to emphasize that in case anybody tries to use my words to validate something that the scripture doesn't validate. Uh, but the point is that our relationships can be used to win souls. Then we see organizational evangelism. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, the Bible says, Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors, and the teachers. So there is a structure, and within that structure we see the evangelist. Um, often people criticize the church uh, because they evangelize within their four walls. Now, of course, we understand that there are times when we need to go outside of the four walls of the church, but we demonize churches often. We demonize structure. We demonize organization. And we say things like, well, I want to just win souls, you know, in a more uh, relaxed way. Or I don't want to be as organized or I don't want to be as structured in my approach. And we say things like, well, I don't like organized religion. Well, what do you like? Disorganized religion? Chaotic religion? Chaotic church? Disorganized church? Name me one thing God ever did that was unorganized. Everything God does requires organization. He is a God of order. And the same is true of his church. And the church, the body of Christ, has a system and a structure to it. And within that system, within that structure, we have evangelists. So it can be said that one of the great ways that God wins souls, one of the greatest really arms of evangelism is the local church. In fact, more people are probably saved through the local church statistically than anywhere else. So before you criticize a local church gathering, before you criticize the idea that we can evangelize through the local church or through church events, uh, just stop and pause and realize that's one of the ways that evangelism actually works. And finally, number four, we see supernatural evangelism. Mark chapter 16, verse 20. And the disciples went everywhere and preached and the Lord worked through them confirming what they said by many miraculous signs. So often the preaching of the gospel is accompanied by miracles. Now, this is not to say that every time you preach the gospel, you have to demonstrate a healing or a deliverance because the gospel message by itself can stand. But that doesn't mean that God cannot use on occasion miracles to help facilitate an audience or to help maybe capture the attention of a listener or maybe even to draw people to a place where they're going to hear that gospel message. It can be one of the ways that God works. So often evangelism is accompanied by supernatural demonstrations of power. Now let's take a look at how Jesus evangelized, glean some points from that. And then after we take a look at that particular portion of scripture and glean some points from it, I wanna give you some very practical keys that you can apply to your life to help you win your loved ones to the Lord. So again, maybe there's this stubborn individual or stubborn individuals, you're praying for them, and it's created this frustration, this angst, this tension in your walk with God, and you want to be released of that. Uh, keep listening. By the way, you will notice that as you listen to the Word of God, often your flesh will try to look for a distraction, something different than the word of God. So I want to challenge you to listen to this message all the way through, because as you are challenged, you will grow. And as you grow, you become better equipped to win your loved ones to Christ. John chapter four, we're going to begin at verse number six. 
Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. Verse 9, the woman was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? And Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Verse 11, but sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water from? Verse number 12. And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. I mean, this... I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here, but this is quite confrontational. I mean, he just met this woman and now he's confronting her on a particular issue in her life that probably is a very touchy subject for her. I mean, just the fact that she was alone at the well demonstrates to us that she probably lived in great shame and others definitely shunned her because of her reputation. You certainly spoke truth, Jesus says. Continuing at verse number 19. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship? Well, we Samaritans claim it is here and Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshipped. Jesus replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on the mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship. Well, we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. The time is coming, indeed it's now here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now look at verse 25. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Just then his disciples came back. I mean, just even looking at Jesus's evangelistic approach. There's a lot we can pull from this. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So now there's a spark of hope in here that takes place. She's beginning to believe on the Lord Jesus. So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. I love this, but Jesus replied, I have a kind of food you know nothing about. And so we'll, we'll stop it there, and then we'll begin to look at the various different portions of Scripture. Um, but you know, Jesus was satisfied to do the will of the Father. 
Often when I stand on the platform after having given a call to salvation and I see the many people coming to receive Christ, there's something in me that just begins to, to spring up. There's like this life, this river flowing out of me. I can feel it. And, and there is such joy that I sense in that moment when I see people coming to the cross. And when you come to our services, you'll see people from every background, every culture, every nation. It's just this perfect blend of everyone, like the kingdom of God. And I look over and I see not just different nations, not just different cultures, not just different backgrounds and lifestyles, but I see from young to old, little children being saved to the elderly being saved. And when I see that happen in that moment, there's just this joy that I sense. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. And I often tell my team, guys, don't ever forget the privilege we have to see this. Don't ever let this get old. This is a joyous occasion. So Jesus is saying, the food I have, you don't know anything about this. They couldn't at that point, I suppose. And he's saying, I'm just, I'm just satisfied in doing the will of my Father. But look now at verse number six. We see that Jesus was very tired. He was tired from the day. He was tired from walking. So this is key number one. Number one, he was willing. He was willing to see the opportunity. He was willing to seize the moment even though he was tired. He was willing to overcome that physical fatigue for the joy that was set before him in that moment. And in moments like that, often we miss the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Maybe we're tired. Maybe we're hungry. Maybe we're exhausted mentally and emotionally from the day. Maybe we don't want to be stimulated by anything else in our environment and we'd rather just go in and do nothing. And there are times to rest. Of course, I'm not condemning that. But we have to also remember to be willing to look for those moments and then seize upon those moments even when we feel exhausted and tired. So that's number one, he was willing. Number two, if you look at verse seven, he was kind. And so soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. The very fact that he's interacting with her it's a demonstration of his kindness. Why? Because of this woman's reputation, she was there drawing alone at the well. That's a huge clue as to how she lived. She was there by herself, and Jesus begins to interact with her. Jesus begins to engage her. And I doubt that anyone had ever spoken to her with that much love and respect. I doubt that she had experienced that anytime recently before that moment. Jesus was kind to her. The woman's situation was one of shame, one of rejection, one where she was not welcome uh, to be with the crowds. And sometimes evangelists, pastors, teachers, we in ministry, we care more about crowds than we do about people. But I want to remind you that when you see crowds, congregations, that you are seeing a mass of stories and a mass of lives. This woman was approached by the Lord in kindness, his tender mercy. That's number two, be kind. Now, this doesn't mean that you can't be confrontational. I'm going to cover that in point number four. But this does mean that there should be a level of respect, civility. There should be this love and compassion that you have for the people. If you lack love and compassion, that will begin to show in your evangelism. Number three, he was relatable. At verse number 14, we see that he begins to draw upon, I don't mean that to be a pun, but he begins to draw upon the situation in which they found themselves. They were at a well, they were drawing water. And so what does Jesus do? He takes advantage of that opportunity to communicate to her in a way that she can understand. 
Jesus often shared using parables, but he was relatable to her. He began to share about this living water, drinking from that which would cause one to never be thirsty again. So he didn't necessarily bash her, but he took the time to communicate with her in a way that she could receive it and understand it. Number four, he was confrontational. Verse number 18, I mean, this is, like I said, when I read it just a few moments ago, I said I was getting ahead of myself, but it just stands out. Again, he's engaging, he's loving, he's kind, and the woman is speaking with him. So you can imagine maybe it caught her just a little bit off guard when he says, for you have had five husbands and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke truth. I don't think he was necessarily being sarcastic, but he was emphasizing a point quite heavily. And he was calling her out on her sin. Guys, Jesus called this woman out on her sin. We have a responsibility. I know it's not popular to say, but I'm going to tell it to you anyway. We have a responsibility to speak against sin. You can be kind, you can be willing, you can be relatable while also being confrontational. In fact, it is your kindness and love that will help the people to better receive when you confront them. Often when we are approached by loved ones who confront us about areas in our lives that maybe are out of order, we can better receive from our loved ones than we can a stranger. Now, I understand that often we do evangelize strangers, but the point I'm simply making here is that kindness and confrontation are not at odds with one another. Now, some might point to the scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, where the Bible says, it isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it is certainly your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. But that would be to take this particular scripture out of context, because what he's actually addressing is discipline within the context of the gathering of the saints, within the body of Christ. So this only means that it's not our responsibility to discipline believers under church authority. In other words, there's no, there's no body to kick them out of. They're not in the body. There's no action to take within the leadership of the church because they're not under that jurisdiction. Uh, this doesn't mean that we're to be silent on their sin. In fact, before you can present a cure, you have to give the diagnosis. And until they know they are sick, they're not going to take the cure. Until they know there's a problem, they're not going to embrace the solution. So confrontation and kindness are not in conflict with one another. In fact, they help to balance one another out. So we have to address the sin in the world. For 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says, For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. So here we see in the scripture, it's quite clear that when someone is broken over their sin, that it actually can ultimately lead to repentance, which is what we want. Repentance should be preached. Luke 24, 46 and 47. And he said, yes, it is written long ago. It was written long ago, excuse me that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. We are to call this wicked world to repentance. Acts 3.19. Now repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord really isn't being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. 
He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Acts 17.30, God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times. But now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. So the Holy Spirit can convict through our preaching. This is something we have to be keenly aware of. The Holy Spirit uses the preaching of the gospel, the declarations against sin, to pierce the stubborn hearts of the sinners. And that is something that we have to be in line with. We can't just reject that part of evangelism just because we don't want to be perceived as bigoted or narrow-minded or closed-minded or old-fashioned or rude. I'm not saying you go out of your way to be rude. In fact, you are to preach that confrontational message in love and kindness. We are calling them to repent because we love them. We're calling them to repent because we want them to experience eternal life. Imagine that there was a child playing in the middle of the street and you saw a car coming and you noticed that the driver was distracted and it was quite obvious to you that there would be a very tragic collision just about to take place. You wouldn't say, excuse me, can you can you consider maybe that the road isn't somewhere you should be standing right now? Or excuse me, may, maybe you might want to play somewhere else. No, there would be this urgency. Your heart would race. Your adrenaline would pulse through your body. And you would run out into the street waving your hands out of love and concern and care and compassion. And there would be this urgency to your crying, get out of the street. A car is coming. Get out of the street. You're going to be hurt. And it is with that same urgency we must declare the gospel. It's with that same urgency we must shine the light in dark places. When you shine a light in a dark place where people have been sleeping, where people have been resting in that darkness, that light shined in their face can often cause discomfort. But that doesn't mean you let it go dark. Next, we notice that the effect that Jesus had on this woman was a contagious effect. Meaning that after he won the woman over, after he began to evangelize her in such a way that her eyes were open and she saw that Jesus was the way, now her heart was turned to such a degree that she ran back into the village declaring the gospel message. Declaring that the Messiah had come. After he won the woman over, she went and told the whole town. A true evangelist, has a contagious nature to their communication, meaning that he or she will inspire others to win their loved ones to the Lord. As an evangelist, God has given you a special grace to lead people to salvation. People can spot what's genuine and catch it. From one encounter with Jesus, an adulterous woman went from the shame of sin to the ecstasy of soul winning. Jesus' soul winning produced soul winners. Let me say that again. Jesus' soul winning produced soul winners. His message had a domino effect. True evangelists carry a passion for evangelism that is contagious. Now let's take a look briefly at some keys that you can begin to apply. Um, I just talked about being confrontational, and that is, again, a key that we want to re-examine, and I want to make sure that it is affirmed. Um, you must present the truth to them. So write this down. Number one, present the truth to them. That's your responsibility. Isaiah 58, 1, cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet and show my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Luke 5, 32, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This, of course, is speaking to the power of that declaration of repentance. 
Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, yet preaching the good news is not something I can boast about. I am compelled by God to do it. How terrible for me if I didn't preach the good news. Now, let me clarify something here because sometimes believers hear something that's not being said. I'm not saying that you should therefore go and be nasty and mean and rude to people and say, well, I'm just telling you the truth. Because this is something that immature believers do. We imagine, and not only, by the way, this is a bit of a tangent, but I think it's worth saying, not only do we do this when it comes to evangelism, we do this when it comes to preaching. Why are preachers pointlessly, needlessly mean and rude? It doesn't make any sense. You can make a bold declaration. You can call out sin. You can say things that are true, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you try to be mean. It's like in preaching today, it's a competition. Who can say the meaner thing? Who can say the harsher thing? And we've, for some reason, equated harshness with truth-telling. And while the truth can be harsh, we mustn't add to that harshness just so that we can be celebrated as somebody who doesn't water it down or who tells it like it is. That's all ego. And if that's the motive for doing so, we need to make sure that we check our hearts. So I'm saying, yes, you will offend people. Yes, you should present the truth. Yes, you should call out sin. But you're not doing it for the purpose of offending people. Someone who truly loves the lost doesn't avoid offending them and doesn't try to offend them. That's that's neither here nor there. Offending them or not offending them is not even in the picture. Your goal is to win them to the Lord. Your goal is to present the truth. So in, pre in presenting the truth of the gospel, offending people is not our goal, but neither should it be our deterrent. Let me say that to you again. In presenting the truth of the gospel, offending people is not our goal, but neither should it be our deterrent. People, by the way, aren't turned off of the, from the gospel because of our preaching. You hear that often said. When you preach against sin, believers will put up their hand in offense and say, wait a minute, you shouldn't tell them that because you're going to turn them off to the gospel. My friend, Jesus told us very plainly why people are turned off to the gospel. He said, here's the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people rejected the light. Why? Because they love darkness. So people aren't turned off to the gospel just because you told them the truth about their sin. People are turned off to the gospel because they love their sin and they don't like the light. So never mind with this nonsensical idea that we shouldn't preach the gospel because it might offend someone or we shouldn't call out sin because it might turn someone off to the gospel. That doesn't make any sense anyway. That's like a doctor saying, well, I can't tell them what the diagnosis is because I don't want them to be offended and I don't want them to get mad that I'm telling them there's a cure. That's the whole reason you have to address it in the first place because that problem was there. So we mustn't be afraid of presenting the truth of the gospel and we mustn't be afraid of calling people to repentance. Remember, diagnosis before prognosis. I'd rather offend someone into heaven than comfort them into hell. I'd rather offend someone into heaven than comfort them into hell. So again, in being confrontational in presenting the truth, the goal is not to puff up ego, to win an argument, to prove that we were right, or to prove that we're better than other people. By the way, we're not. The goal is to present the truth and let it be what it is. If it offends them, it offends them. If it doesn't offend them, it doesn't offend them. But your goal isn't to try to offend and to try not to offend. Your goal is just to present the truth. Number two, and this is so key, it's very difficult. Let me just say this. It's very difficult for people to receive the gospel from hypocrites. So number two, practice purity. Luke 11, 33 through 36. Luke 11, 33 through 36. No one lights a lamp and then hides it 
or puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where its light can be seen by all who enter the house. Your eye is like the lamp that provides light for your body. By the way, that scripture is often abused uh, to mean that something else. So all Jesus is saying there is he's talking about the nature of light. Uh, When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when it is unhealthy, your body is filled with darkness. Make sure that the light you think you have is not actually darkness. If you are filled with light, key verse here, if you are filled with light with no dark corners, then your whole life will be radiant as though a floodlight were filling you with light. So Jesus is talking about us being the light. And he's saying, you're not supposed to hide that light. You're supposed to put it where the light can affect the darkness around it or dissipate that darkness, I think is a better way to say it. But here he says that if you are filled with light with no dark corners, so there's not these areas of compromise. There's not these areas of perversion. We don't compartmentalize our surrender to God. We give it all to him. Obviously, we're a work in progress. No one is perfect, but at least living in the posture of surrender is something that we should do and be committed to submitting ourselves to the process of sanctification as the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. But if you are filled with light, with no dark corners, there's no area of your life where you're hiding something, then your whole life will be radiant. So one could put it this way. The effectiveness of your evangelism is increased as purity is increased. The effectiveness of your evangelism is increased as purity is increased. Could it be, and I'm just going to say this and it's going to challenge you and I'm telling you, I'm asking you because I love you. Could it be that they're not, re- not, they're not receiving the gospel from you? Could it be that they are rejecting the gospel through your lips because with those same lips, you are saying things that are perverse, that are rude, that are abusive because you gossip, because you lie, because your words are unreliable. Could it be that they're rejecting the presentation of the gospel because of the way that you live? Could it be that your hypocrisy has become a stumbling block? You tell them they need Jesus, but then you act like you don't have him. You tell them they need to be saved, but then you act just like they act. You tell them they need to be delivered, but then they see you living in bondage. Now, I know this isn't easy to hear, but it's something that needs to be said. And I'm, I'm telling you this because I love you and I want you to begin to walk in the light in such a way that there are no dark corners so that those who hear the gospel through your lips aren't offended by hypocrisy. Now, of course, God can use anyone he wishes. There are always sovereign exceptions uh, to almost every spiritual generalization, but purity is important for evangelism. It's how you become the light. By the way, and this again is another tangent, um, this also means demonstrating unity. What did Jesus say in John 17, 23? I have it written right here. I put it in my notes last minute. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Could it be that they're rejecting the gospel or they don't think we're really sent by God because we're constantly bickering with one another and arguing with one another? Could it be because we're constantly heresy hunting? And by the way, heresy hunting isn't just from non-charismatic to charismatic. I see charismatics, heresy hunting, charismatics too. Turning on those in their own, what you would call a camp. But this should not be the case in the body of Christ. Yes, it's one thing to call out blatant heresy, 
But 99.9% of the time, that's not what's being done. People are calling out each other for differences of doctrines that are not even foundational. They're just side doctrines. They're peripheral doctrines. And their egos are so big, they have to prove to themselves that they're right. They have to prove to everybody else that they're smarter or they know the scripture, or that everybody else got it wrong. And again, I'm not even just talking about non-charismatic to charismatic. I'm talking about charismatic attacking charismatic because of some method they didn't like because of some way they worded something. Maybe they were offended by the terminology they used. And the world sees this. Immature Christians posing as leaders and they're bickering and they're fighting and they're back and forth. And the world says, you can't even agree among yourselves. I don't think you're sent by God. You can't even agree amongst yourselves. And so here we see that practicing purity causes us to be a light before the lost and this also applies to how we treat one another in front of the lost. My parents had, my parents had a, a rule when, when, when we were growing up, my siblings and I, we would never see our parents disagree in front of each other. They had a rule that their disagreements would be expressed respectfully in private. And I remember I, I did, they, they always worked as a team. They functioned in sync. And even if maybe one wasn't aware of another rule that the other had laid down, they would just go with it until they discussed it behind closed doors. And in doing that, they displayed this beauty, this authority, um, this great example of marriage, but it's a good example to the body of Christ. Why are we bickering in front of the world? And it causes us to lose our witness. It dims our light. Number three, you pray for them. Romans 10.1, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for Israel that they might be saved. Now, of course, here Paul the Apostle is talking about his desire that Israel would turn to Christ and he's praying for that very same thing. So the only principle I'm gleaning from this scripture is that it's biblical to pray for the lost to come to Christ. 1 John 5.14 says, and this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. Well, the Bible says God is willing that none should perish. So our prayers can include salvation for the lost. Matthew 7, 7. And maybe this is you. You're asking, you're seeking, you are knocking. Lord, I'm asking, save them. Lord, I'm asking, redeem them. Lord, I'm asking, turn their stubborn heart away from the world and toward you. If the gospel is the seed, then prayer is the water and the Holy Spirit is the life-giving light. The Holy Spirit is the one who draws them to salvation. Never mind with our pressure tactics. The gospel is not a product and we are not salespeople. We are presenters of the gospel. And as we present the gospel in truth, in light, in love, the Holy Spirit illuminates that, draws people to the cross and causes them to experience the salvation experience. And so we ought to pray for our loved ones and we ought to pray that God sends workers into the field. But we are to pray for our loved ones, plead for our loved ones before the throne room of heaven. Number four, you present power. Now, I didn't spend a lot of time on number three because if you're believing for your loved ones to be saved, that's probably all you do every day. In fact, I have a prayer list. I'm looking over my prayer list of people I've prayed to be saved. And as I look at this prayer list, I mean, this, this is from um, years ago. My goodness, like we're talking, I want to say... 2008, 2009, and looking over my prayer list, about 20 or so people, more than half of them have since then come to the cross. And so it's good. Write it down. I'm not saying it's because of my prayers um, alone. It was the work of the Holy Spirit, but that's to encourage you. 
that you know that your prayers are contributing to something. So pray, pray, pray. And number four, present power. First Corinthians chapter two, verse four says, and my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, again, here, this is not saying that this is the only way to evangelize. Here, Paul the Apostle is talking about a very specific evangelistic effort that he gave. And in this specific instance, he demonstrated through power. Now, of course, let's balance this because I'm not saying that uh, we there are instances where the power is not needed. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Um, what I'm saying here is simply that sometimes God will allow us or God will ask us or the occasion will call for using demonstrations of power to demonstrate the truth of the gospel message. Praying for the sick, prophesying. I know people who came to the Lord because they received a prophetic word on the street or because their child was healed or because their marriage was restored. Now, I understand that some people might be offended by that. You don't come to Jesus for what he can give you in this lifetime. You come to Jesus because you need to repent of your sins. And I understand that. But God in his mercy and compassion draws sinners to repentance in any way that he so chooses. He's sovereign. And so if he wants to use the working of a miracle to do that, he can do that. And we must be okay with that. Not only okay with that, we should celebrate that. I love seeing demonstrations of the Holy Spirit's power draw people to the cross that's one of the things that can capture attention. And we shouldn't shy away from that. It's in the biblical model. And again, I want to emphasize, I'm not saying that unless you prophesy or heal the sick or cast out a devil, that it wasn't true salvation. That's bordering heresy. Nor am I saying uh, the other end. I'm not saying it's always, and I'm not saying it's never. I'm saying let God sovereignly work through you as he so chooses. Um, but also make sure, and this is just a caveat to add with this, Make sure that it doesn't become just about the miracle itself. As long as you use the miracle to point to Jesus, that is a, is a I want to say, I don't want to use the word safe, but that is a legitimate use, I should say, of the power of the Holy Spirit. But if you use the miracle just to point to the miracle, like, oh, wow, wasn't that cool? That doesn't necessarily result in actual repentance. And in fact, there's a danger that if you demonstrate power for power's sake or power for power alone, that you're actually going to contribute to the likelihood that the individual is going to be falsely converted. In other words, they say, oh, wow, I saw something cool. Yeah, I want to get on board with whatever it is that you're doing there, but they're not understanding that they need to repent of their sins. They're not understanding that they need to place their faith in Christ. They're not understanding their own brokenness, their own humanity, Christ's perfection. Not that you need all of these theological components to come together to be saved, but rather that the gospel message must be understood at at least a basic level. And that revelation of the gospel is the power of God into salvation. So again, balance even when presenting power. And finally, number five, you are to demonstrate love. Treat them with love. Treat them with kindness. And make sure that you're not pooling too hard. If I were to walk up to you and grab your wrist and pull really hard, what would your first reaction be? It would be to pull your arm back like, David, what on earth are you doing? And that's because it's a natural human reaction to pull away when we feel that others are pulling too hard. And here's where I want to challenge you now. Mothers, fathers, grandparents, siblings, friends. Could it be that you are confusing nagging for persistent preaching of the gospel? We need to make sure that we're not trying to do the job of the Holy Spirit. We are to preach the gospel, 
Our job is not to nag. Now, I'm not saying that there's ever a time where you just give up and stop preaching the gospel if the Holy Spirit's leading you to still minister to them. But what I am saying is that the way we present it must be done so in love. And if we're doing it out of ego, if we're doing it because we just want to prove that they're wrong and, and we're right, or, or maybe we feel insecure in our own beliefs and faith, and therefore the fact that they're rejecting the gospel message makes us feel invalidated in our own beliefs because we're not secure in who we are in Christ, well, then now we're going to cause some trouble. Now there's conflict. Now it's personal. Now it's all your emotions wrapped up. It's your ego wrapped up. It's your pride wrapped up in it. And you're pooling and you're nagging and you're constantly on them. Well, they're just going to want to get away from you. I'm just going to tell you like it is. So there's a difference, again, between faithfully presenting the gospel in love to them and nagging, 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 nagging. Don't try to do the Holy Spirit's job for him. Ultimately though, and 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 I pray this releases you because, and I'm going to close with this point because, because this is important that, that you catch this. I pray that you understand that though you have a responsibility to share the gospel, please, you need to hear this. Though you have a responsibility to share the gospel, it is not your responsibility to save. Let that sink in for a moment. Not a terribly profound point, but it is, it is a simple point that you must embrace. A truth you must accept. Because otherwise, if you think you are responsible for saving them, you are going to be tormented by their disobedience. You are going to bear burdens of guilt, burdens of shame. You're going to lack peace. You're going to become all tangled up in your own emotions. And as a result, you're going to push them away because of the tension that you've created in yourself for carrying a burden that isn't yours. Now, I know what it is to have my heart broken and continually broken over individuals who continually reject the gospel or who maybe at one point seemed like they were in the faith and then walked away proving they were not really in the faith. And I know what that is to see people walk away. I know what that is to see people change. I know what that is to see people stubbornly reject Jesus. And it's tempting to, out of fear, try to control everything that's happening in them. You'll, you'll, you'll try to play the Holy Spirit constantly and you wear this like a burden on you and it chokes out the joy in your life. It chokes out the peace in your life. And if, if you're lacking peace and joy and love because you're so upset by what they're doing or not doing, then that in turn actually damages your witness. Because if you lack peace and joy and love and then you go try to evangelize, well, you're going to be evangelizing out of fear. Someone needs to hear this. I'm telling you, you're evangelizing out of fear. You're evangelizing out of frustration. You're evangelizing in an attempt to control rather than just presenting, speaking the truth. Yeah, you tell them the truth. Be straight up. Tell them like it is. But ultimately recognize it's not your job to save them. Acts 20, 26, and I declare today that I have been faithful. If anyone suffers eternal death, it's not my fault. So once you've presented the gospel, it's presented. Once you've planted that seed, you can water it, but that individual has to respond. And this is, this, by the way, this is where many people become frustrated. 
because they do everything they know to do. They pray, they preach the word, they love them, they're living right. All of those things we talked about. And then it comes to the point where the person just rejects the gospel. And you're going, okay, uh, that didn't work. What else? Give me something else. What else do I do? I'm telling you, if you're doing all these things, that's the limit to human ability. I know that's not what you want to hear. Sure, fast for them, but that's a part of prayer. Sure, ask others to pray for them, but that's a part of prayer. And I'm not saying this in like a doomsday manner, nor am I saying this in a negative way. I'm saying you can rejoice in that now it's in God's hands. You can continue to pray. You can continue to evangelize. You can continue to love them, but let it be in God's hands. Aren't his hands capable? Doesn't he love them? In fact, doesn't he love them more than you love them? Is he not able? I mean, do we not trust in his ability? I mean, if he's willing that they should not perish, don't you think he's going to do everything he can in his power outside of controlling their own will? Don't you think he's going to do everything in his power to draw them to the cross? He's going to put the right people in their lives. He's going to remove the wrong people. He's going to cause circumstances. He's going to prevent circumstances. He's going to open doors. He's going to close doors. Leave it in God's hands. So yes, you can still be concerned. Yes, and let me be very clear. You should keep praying for them. You should keep evangelizing, making sure you're not bordering on nagging them. You should be persistent in believing for that miracle. But while you are persistent in believing, make sure that you're not trying to take up the responsibility yourself of believing for them and saving for God because neither are your responsibility. Plant the seeds of the gospel and leave it to Jesus. Now, what I want to do is let's believe for your loved ones to come to the cross. Father, I pray for each and every loved one being brought to you right now. And I pray, Lord, that you would cause them to come to the cross. Father, we pray that you would cause their hard hearts, their stony hearts, to become hearts of flesh. Lord, forgive us for the ways that we've tried to control out of fear and frustration. Forgive us for not shining our light as we should. And I pray, Lord, that as we move into repentance in this area, that you would begin to use us. Use us as extensions of your love. Use us as examples of your shining light. Draw them unto you, Lord, I pray. Bring them to the cross. Touch each life of those represented here. Thank you, Jesus. We honor you. We bless you. And Lord, I pray that the day would come that we would rejoice at their salvation. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. I want you to write it because you believe it right. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Encounter Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. Support the podcast by becoming a monthly supporter or making a one-time donation now. To give, just go to davidhernandezministries.com slash donate. Until next time, remember, nothing is impossible with God.